Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Chloe Clark. Hi Chloe, how's things with you? Really well, thank you Kieran. You know, lockdown and everything aside. Well, actually, lockdown hasn't been too bad for me because I've spent most of it in Devon in my parents' lovely house. I'm in a, in a hammock in the garden, so I can't complain. That sounds lovely. Um, <laughs> It's great that we've had such nice weather the last couple of weeks as well, being able to enjoy that. We've been so lucky, haven't we, um, for the majority of, of all of this. I can't help mm. but think that the the fewer sort of cars and emissions, mm. and, you know, pollution going into the atmosphere might have helped that a little bit. So um, Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm. I might uh, be wrong, but... But, know, yeah... I, I want to start where I always start with these um, podcasts and ask you, how did you first get interested in theatre? Oh, well, um, I, I've always wanted to perform ever since I could remember. I'm one of those, I'm one of those people who goes, oh, I don't remember ever wanting to do anything else. I always wanted to be an actor. I didn't necessarily want to be an actor, but I definitely wanted to perform mm. as a you know, uh, show off basically, <laughs> and, um, and I got into that. I think the main thing that made me passionate about that was watching comedians, funnily enough, stand up comedy. Um, and the comedians at the time, like Lenny Henry and Billy Connolly and French and Saunders, and that brilliant lot of amazing people, um, really inspired me to want to get into the arts in general. Theatre. My love of theatre sort of grew later on, uh, I think throughout you know, my teenage years and, and right. uh, throughout my degree when I started to experience theatre a bit more, um, that sort of aspect of live performance and you know, having the audience to bounce off and you know, that symbiotic relationship really excited me. And, and did you go to youth theatres and things like that when you were a child or...? I did, yes, I did. I remember auditioning for National Youth Music Theatre, actually. Right. And I didn't get in, but I it was my the first audition I ever did. I must have been about 14, 13, 14. Um, I didn't get into the cast, but I did get asked to work in the creative team uh, as part of their, I think it was the marketing department. And uh, and so I got an insight into how it all ran, you know, from, from behind the scenes. And that was really interesting. Um and then, yes, I did, I went to, a, what was it called? Exeter Little Theatre Company, I think it was called. Right. That I went to when I was young, and I absolutely loved it. Really loved it. We did pantos and things like that. Um, but lots of really good, you know, workshops and masterclasses that really sort of got, let me sort of sink my teeth into it quite young. So that was great. And were there any issues or difficulties around access for you um, as a young person? Well, yes. I mean, there always were. I think I was less aware of them as a child and young person uh, for what they were, if you know what I mean. I knew that, you know, I found things more difficult than other people, but I didn't necessarily identify those things as being barriers that were put up by, you know, other people. Um, So I I didn't really know necessarily how to uh, combat those barriers or, or do anything about it, except that, you know, the theatre company I, I worked with, you know, would make accommodations and, and at school they made accommodations. So, yeah, I wasn't really aware of them, but they were obviously there. Um, mm. 
Definitely. And you went to the. Let me just look at my notes. Uh, you went to the University of Bath and you studied Spanish and politics. Um, why did you decide to study Spanish and politics as opposed to an arts degree? And was it your intention to go into either of those fields originally? No. Yeah, my uni story is a bit of a lengthy one. I basically, I promised my mum I'd get a proper degree. So, <laughs> and when I left school, I had quite a tough time in my sort of teenage years at school, and I did a, I did quite well academically, but I didn't um, I didn't want to further you know do any further education. Really. I, I sort of lost any passion for for academic education. Um, and uh, so I decided I didn't want to go to uni, uh, but the, but I had in my final years of school got really into the idea of filmmaking, because in my mind it was much more realistic to be a film director than it was to be an actor, which is what I really wanted to do. <laughs> um, so I ended up doing a year of uh, film school at, at Newport uh, here in Wales, oh. and uh, yeah, I did it a year of film and video. And it just wasn't the right thing for me in the end. So I, I did a year and then I dropped out. Mm. Um, and in the meantime, my mum, who's always right, mums are always right, um, suggested I pursue the Spanish that I'd started to do in sixth form. And I did really love learning that language. I, I had been excluded from doing French in school before because of my visual impairment. The teacher basically had said, well, learning a language is very vis uh, visual, so I, I don't know how to teach her, so she just doesn't have to do the class. So I never learned any languages apart from Spanish, and I did love it. So mum encouraged me to, mm. first of all, go to Spain, and I lived in Seville for six months and, and learned Spanish there, which was wonderful. Wow. Um, and that's what then prompted me to go and do Spanish at uni. But at Bath, you could only do a joint honours, you couldn't just do one language. So although I wanted to do Spanish and Italian, I was told that that would be too much reading and too difficult, but they did accept me in the meantime onto the politics degree. Okay. <laughs> no reading at all required politics, obviously. Um, so I did. I ended up going, going to do Spanish and politics for four years. Uh, were you were you interested in politics, or was it just something that you had to do in order to take Spanish? It was a bit of both, to be honest. I am interested in politics, and I have a very um, diversely political family. My, my grandpa was an MP and my uncle is the mayor of Stevenage and you know we've got a very political family right. so it's always interesting to me but to do it academically for four years it, it was quite a dry degree so I, you know mm -hmm. I wasn't really enthralled with, with that aspect of it. Um, it was mainly so that I could pursue the Spanish. Um, and I'd always thought, you know, at the end of this, hopefully I'll go and do a postgrad or another degree in drama degree, or you go to a drama school. Yeah. Ideally, that was my aim. Uh, and upon finishing and graduating from that course, how did you feel? Did you feel like what? What do I do next? Kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit because obviously you finish a four-year degree and you don't have any money. So I was thinking, well, how am I going to pay? to go to any kind of drama school now yeah, um, yeah and, and yeah I, I was a bit um, floundering about what to do next but you know basically I knew that I wanted to pursue acting and my best course of action for that was to find a degree that you know find a, a school that I could go to relatively cheaply and relatively quickly <laughs> so i ended up going to do a postgrad at the bristol academy of performing arts okay um yes so that was that was an experience <laughs> what, what was that like compared to compared to your prior university experience well it was really odd it was a very strange experience because funnily enough although I think actually the standard of teaching was quite good generally speaking it it was a really immature institution in the sense that it felt very much like a sixth form college the students there felt very young and I was coming into this at the age of about 24 right. uh, having a four-year degree thinking oh, <laughs> this is very odd but I knew I was only there for a year 
and I knew that I would learn a lot. Um, so, you know, it, it was definitely, and it got my, my foot in the door, basically, in terms of getting mm. into the industry then. So it was what I needed, but looking back, I really would have made more of an effort to try and go to some kind of accredited school, even if that was just for a year, I think. Did it give you the toolkit that you needed as an actor to use after that course? To a degree it did. I think I learnt more on the job over the mm. last 10 years than I ever learnt there. But um, it definitely gave me my way into the industry and I think that was the most important thing. Um, I learned some fundamental skills, but because I was joining on the postgrad level and I'd never done any kind of drama training before, mm. I feel that I missed out on that fundamental drama training level that you need, as, a, as I said, as a foundation yeah. to, to start with, really, and grow from. Um, so, you know, I spent the last 10 years trying to do as many workshops and classes and uh, residencies as I can to sort of build on that, really. Was it and was it kind of before that postcard or during that postcard that you started to think of acting as something that was viable and sustainable as a career for you and something that you really wanted I, to do? Yeah, I suppose it was. I already knew that I desperately wanted to do it, but you know. I think it's the same for anyone. You say early on that you want to be an actor and all you're met with is, oh, well, it's a very difficult industry. It's yeah. very difficult. Only a few people make it, you know, ooh, all this um, caution. And, you know, that's not actually always helpful because, of course, you can get into the industry and act if that's what you want to do. It's tough. It is tough. Um, and it is difficult to, to be successful on a sustainable level but all it takes really is, is you know, a learnt skill set, talent and perseverance. I think perseverance is really the key aspect there. Um, so, you know, during that year, I saw basically the mechanics of, I learnt the mechanics of how to go about getting ahead in the industry in terms of how you apply for jobs, where you find the jobs, yeah. the castings, you know, what you need to do get an agent, get headshots, all of the technical aspects of trying to find work. So I suppose, yes, it did start to come together in terms of how practically you move forward in the industry, yeah. And so often, like, for actors these days, or even on my course, which was a writing course, we didn't get taught those kind of practical skills of getting an agent or, like, the practical things of how to exist within the industry. That's so important, and I don't see why those things aren't taught on BA courses. No, oh. it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because that's the actual essential information mm. that you need. You can have the creative training, but if you don't know how to implement that, or how to go about getting employed, then how are you going to do anything? Absolutely. Yeah, what, what good is it? Is that training going to be if you don't know how to implement it practically yeah. after you leave? Mm. Mm, exactly, yeah. And how, how was it to, to break into the industry um, early in your career? And, and what opportunities did you find at this point? It was interesting. It's funny looking back now. It almost feels a bit seedy when you, <laughs> when you very first start out and you're desperate for any kind of job and any kind of agent. And I remember just paying over and over again to go to London, meet with these people that, you know, in some seedy upstairs pub somewhere or some back room, some back office somewhere. And you yeah. think, Wait a I mean, it was also perfectly safe. It's just obviously people want to pay as little as they possibly can, especially in London, for, for space. Mm. So the kind of spaces you go to are very unconventional. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just it's a, a sort of desperation <laughs> that you start out with, clutching at anything that comes your way just to get the experience so that you, then you can feel that you, you have enough experience to sort of move up on the ladder. Um, and I think that is the case. I hope it's less the case these days than it was then, but I've got a feeling it probably hasn't changed much. And emerging, you know, writers, actors, whoever, need to get the experience. Therefore, they take 
underpaid work or no paid work, voluntary work, just for the experience. So, um, yeah, when I look back, I had a couple of really good, fun jobs, acting jobs that were, you know, profit share or whatever. Um, yeah. Staying on the director's sofa at <laughs> Bristol and, you know, doing the show in a church. And it was just, it's really funny looking back because actually those things, were, those jobs were really fun. Um, but I think what's really important, looking back, if I could change anything, as I said, first of all, I'd try my best to get into an accredited course. And secondly, I think I'd have thought much sooner on, earlier on, about what exactly it was I wanted to get out of it, what I wanted to do, what mm. I wanted to say, what impassioned me, what excited me, what direction I wanted to go in. Because you can really get lost taking every other odd job that, that comes your way. Um, and it can affect your confidence a huge amount. It's only really in the last couple of years, and I've been doing this for 10, 11 years, um, that I've really started to be a lot more discerning and, and um, selective about the work that I do. So it's taken me a long time. Um, yeah. But I think it's really important. And looking back, I think, you know, it actually undermines the whole industry and everyone in the industry who keep making, you know, underpaid work um, or no paid work. Do you think labelled artists? I think that's important. Do you think there's a sense that actors have this idea, oh, I've got to take this job because it's industry work, and I might not get another industry job for a few months, so I'll take this to put on my CV because it's an industry job. Yeah, definitely. I think you know this industry is completely saturated and. And we're all aware of that. We're all constantly reminded of that. And so you, you know, if you don't take it, somebody else will. Yeah. It's as simple as that. So you, you do feel the pressure to, to grab with both hands anything that, that comes to you. Um, and sometimes you should just step back and take stock and think, is this the right thing for me to do? Is this actually something I'm interested in? Uh, <laughs> you know, is it the direction I want to go in? And just relax a little bit. If I look back, I think mm. I just relax a little bit more and just go, you know what? Something else will come along, even if it's not for six months, whatever. Yeah. I'll tie my mind with something else and, and focus on what I want to do. Um, and I think, yeah, I think there's a real tendency to just grab, 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 grab while you can. <laughs> and how did you first um, hear of taking flight and then become involved with Taking Flight Productions? Really soon after I came out of training, actually. So I did mm. these jobs that I just mentioned, these sort of profit share jobs. Yeah. Um, for about, I think it was about six months after training, and then training ended, and then uh, Taking I think I saw an advert on Casting Call looking for disabled actors. Uh, or looking, you know, looking for actors, but there was a particular emphasis on you know, disabled actors particularly welcome to apply, I think it said. And I had not, I'd gone through my, uh, you know, training and, and, and everything until that point saying, I don't want to be a disabled actor. I don't want to be a visually impaired actor. I want to be an actor. Um, and, and in actual fact, once you realise, I think most people realise quite quickly, that any kind of USP is beneficial, even if it's something you think is negative. If it stands you apart from other people, it can really work in your favour. And so I realised when I saw that casting call, I thought, okay, so maybe actually identifying as a visually impaired actress could work for me, because um, at the end of the day, I am one. <laughs> you know? So if I choose yeah. to identify that way, and, and there are a few more doors open, then then great. So I uh, I auditioned for them for their first iteration of Romeo and Juliet, right. and was cast as Nursey, um, and that was the start of something like ooh, well many years between six and eight years of um of work with them so yeah so it was quite soon after my training that i, I got in with them and became friendly with them and you know worked with them for every subsequent year pretty much for quite a while and, and was there that thing at all of um you mentioned it being pigeonholed how long did that last kind of how long did it take for you to feel, no, I'm not just being cast because I'm visually impaired, I'm being cast 
because I drew this part. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, well, that hasn't ended. That hasn't ended at all. You know, we work in an industry that is divided. Um, and, you know, I have an agent now who exclusively puts me up for blind person roles. <laughs> you know? Um, right. And there is still very much a sense of, well, to be honest, you've been cast because you ticked this box. Yeah. Um, and sort of that goes back to what I was saying about being discerning about the jobs you take because actually there are lots of companies out there who are casting you know, irrespective of impairment or whatever. Um, so, you know, learn to take the opportunities when they're there, but hopefully you're not you're not just ticking a box. There is still a lot, lot yeah. of tick boxing going on. Yeah. And when you're in rooms with, when you're working with, say, non-disabled-led companies or companies who don't have a history of casting, uh, different disabled actors is there a different feeling for you as an actor as opposed to working with taking flight or you've worked with grey eye as well do you mm-hmm. feel different well the approach is obviously different um, obviously grey eye are really the leading company in terms of uh, you know being disabled led but catering for you know having pretty much exclusively disabled casts and you know, um, being very, very okay with access requirements and how those need to be met. So, you know, the approach is different. Basically, you work for someone like Grey Eye and you know that by and large your access requirements are things that, you know, are not going to be preoccupying you too much because they're acknowledged and they're dealt with um, and everything you need is sort of in place. Whereas when you're working with a mainstream company, you're aware that you may have to keep reminding people that um, you know the onus really is on you to make sure that your access requirements are met and that goes for a lot of integrated companies as well you know if they're not disabled led and the people running these things aren't actually don't have any lived experience often even though with the best will and intention they don't know how to meet your needs so it's actually much more yeah. rare to find that the approach you know to your impairment or to meeting your access needs and all the rest of it is a, is a really positive one that doesn't require a lot of effort from you as an individual. Um, but yeah, so mainstream mainstream companies, there, there tends to be a lot of forgetting. So, you know, you might start, mm. they're, they're very, very well-intentioned and they're very um, eager and enthusiastic to learn about you and how they need to cater for you or, work, you know, how best we can work together. Um, so often you'll sort of lay, lay down the law, you'll explain, you know, on mm. the first day, for example, you know, please just, I won't be able to recognise you, especially as you come in every day in different clothes. So please just make sure that if you talk to me, just say who you are first, really briefly. Um, they'll do it maybe for the first couple of days, but after that, and um, you know, by that point, you feel too awkward to keep, mm. you know, reiterating it. So it's just things like that. But I find that mainstream companies are a lot more sort of eager to listen and, and learn they're very enthusiastic mm. but um but often the obviously the the access requirements sort of go out the door because they're focused on other things which is you know fair enough to a degree but does that mean you're more reluctant to work with mainstream companies or apply for roles with mainstream companies possibly i mean the majority of my work has been with disabled legs integrated companies um and and maybe that does have something to do with how safe i feel but like i said you know you're not always guaranteed to feel safe whatever company you work for whether they're disabled or not so um yeah maybe there is some subconscious um worry and concern there but um there's also a lack of confidence I think with a lot of disabled performers that you especially if you've spent a lot of your career working in the disability arts sector which has a misconception surrounding it that basically it's not as good as the mainstream sector Mm. um I think that can often knock your confidence in terms of the kind of mainstream work you might get and therefore that can affect your you know willingness to apply for jobs and um, put yourself out there and put yourself, mm. make yourself vulnerable and things like that. So, you know, there are a lot of underlying um, sort of inherent factors.
factors that go along with with it. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the other you know the other aspect of it is that a lot of mainstream work just doesn't cater for audiences that are disabled. So I quite frankly just got sick of doing work that I couldn't go and see. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In quite a passion of mine that I wanted to only make work that someone like me could in, could fully access and enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you find uh, a lot with mainstream companies that you work for. There's a lack of willingness or a lack of resources to actually make those changes and adaptations to make something accessible for the audience. And and maybe there's one audio described performance or one BSL performance if you're lucky within a whole run. Um, it's never integrated access. I I haven't found a, a mainstream company that does integrated access on all the phones. It's, it's normally just a one-off on one night. You've got to be free on that night to go and see it. If you, Absolutely, yeah. If you need BSL interpretation or AD, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, God forbid you're a blind person who's got a deaf friend or vice versa. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I see a show together, that's good <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I think um, I think it is getting slightly better in terms of mainstream venues and companies' awareness mm. of access. I think it's definitely creeping forward gradually, um, and there is also a, a burgeoning awareness of, of um, integrated access as well. And one of the things I'm hopefully, uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm not gonna talk about that because I don't think I'm allowed to yet but okay <laughs> but, uh, but there are there are some big players who are hopefully looking to you know work with integrated access in the future and it gives me a bit of hope that you know mainstream mm. platforms are going to start thinking about it at least and, and actioning it because you know we do a lot of talking and a lot of thinking but we don't actually do any doing and that's really really vital for us to move forward I do wonder what comes out of these access seminars that, that are held um, in the WMC. Um, I do wonder what the the product is out of those. Um, Have you been to any? I've been to one, but mm. and I went to the unlimited thing in end of last year. That, oh, was, yeah. that was really interesting, but again, you wonder what power do, do they have to make the change that is needed, you know. And I, I was going to talk about this, this later, but I think it's a good place to bring it up now. Because you've, you've re recently written a toolkit in connection with Disability Arts Cymru. Yeah. Uh, which is aimed at developing visually impaired audiences in Wales. Yeah. Um, what more do you think needs to be done in order to give uh, visually impaired audiences the confidence to attend theatre more regularly and develop, develop this audience, which, you know, some of the attitudes towards visually impaired audiences have been a bit tokenistic, would you say, historically? Yeah, definitely tokenistic and, and also there's a very strange conception out there that concept out there that, you know, why would visually impaired people want to engage with art of any form? <laughs> you know, why would they want to come to the theatre? Why would they want to go to an art gallery? What you know? So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on that's like you said, there's either one audio described performance per program season uh, if you're lucky or you know you find something that's basically audio description and visually impaired access is very low on the pecking order especially mm. compared to something like bsl and deaf access so although i'm absolutely thrilled that there seems to be progress being made in that field of, of uh, accommodating deaf audiences it's uh, basically bsl 
and captioning, but particularly BSL is thought of as it's a very sexy form of access. You know, it's very visible. Audiences yeah. come along and they watch it and they go, oh, what a beautiful language, even though they have no idea what is being, you know, said. And, um, I, I also, like, kind of, if um, a mainstream audience seeing a BSL interpreter inside the stage, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't affect the experience that they're getting, whereas um, people who don't need the audio description would be less likely to go to an audio-described format, would you say? Well, I think one of the things is that audio description as an access form traditionally has been completely invisible. So right. these mainstream audience just aren't aware that it even exists. They might have seen audio, heard audio description on their TV or something if they press the wrong button, but they don't know that it's there in the theatre. They might wonder why some weirdos are sitting there with headsets on, but <laughs> but uh, they don't know it exists. Um, and I think you know if it's been performed in a way that isn't invisible. Uh, basically, any time you mention any kind of access to any mainstream audience, it, it instantly makes them feel excluded in the sense that they think, well, that's superfluous. I don't need that. You know, right. I'm not going to go and see that piece of theatre because it's niche. It's not for me. It's for those people. Yeah. Um, and the style of integrated AD that I work with is is sort of so that it's woven seamlessly into the script so that it's not noticeable so that the play is inherently accessible to visually impaired people, but without the mainstream audience noticing. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't solve the problem of AD being invisible, which you know it always has been. Um, but I think for that reason, you know, because they can see a BSL interpreter and they can go, oh, isn't that wonderful? And the company can say, oh, look, look what we've done for access, yeah. look what we're doing for the deaf community. Whereas audio description has got many attitudinal barriers attached to it first of all it's invisible to most people including the creative team most directors and you know uh, and actors have no idea what the describer is saying so don't know how their show is being portrayed to a section of the audience um but also you know directors have a real attitudinal issue when it comes to ad because they think it's going to impede the creative process they think it's going to put up obstacles and, and hurdles for their creative vision you know, and, and, and distort it and get in the way whereas actually what they don't realize is that it's a real creative opportunity it's another tool to their toolkit of, mm. of creative working you know it's just a, another string to their bow in terms of how you get the best out of your performers and um and how you create a really exciting show it can be used absolutely brilliantly to enhance comedy and and all sorts of things so People mm. just don't realise what what an opportunity it is. Um, have but you? In terms, oh, have, sorry. Go on. Have you seen kind of good and bad examples of where it's been applied? Is there like yeah. what what is first of all a really good example where it's worked really well and been integrated, and then are there bad examples of where it just hasn't worked? Yeah, so in order for it to be really well integrated and properly and really well executed, it needs to be conceived from the very beginning of a project. Um, the worst kind of AD is the kind that's just tacked on at the end and hasn't been given any consideration by the creative team at all. And so it's just stuck on um, and, and therefore is completely external to the action, to, to the world of the play. Um, the best is when it's conceived from the very beginning, so the writer needs to think about it. I'm, the writer doesn't necessarily need to write it, but needs to be yeah. aware that there are spaces for AD to come in um, and think about... Because there, there are all sorts of different ways to integrate AD. Um, one of the misconceptions that I, you know, that I come across it all the time, and this is both from people who are very aware of AD and people who have no experience at all, is that you need some kind of external or narrative voice that, that describes things. And actually, if you're going to integrate it properly and really seamlessly, 
You don't need any extra character who's dedicated to describing. You need to weave it into the dialogue so that all of the characters are describing in a very natural way that, that would go completely unnoticed by the audience. So, um, It's almost you know, like writing a radio play, almost. Well, I suppose being aware of how radio plays work mm. can help. But yes, that's that was another example I was going to give. Often, when you ask people to think about AD in a interwoven way, they they write a radio play. You think well, you're okay. not making a radio play; you're making a stage play. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But that sounds absolutely right because you know a lot of the effects that you would use, a lot of the formulae that you would use in a radio play, do come into play mm. when you're thinking about how to use AD to its utmost because you would use ambient sound and you would use sound effects and you would use music and you would use all sorts of different uh, sound elements to come together to provide the same information that a traditional description would provide as well as the dialogue so right. you're absolutely right you know it's definitely those elements of radio play that you're thinking of that are useful um but sometimes you run the risk of it becoming a radio play that's then staged I you know so it's I still um, and it's really interesting. There are so many different ways to do it. Sometimes using characters who are specifically designed to describe can be a really comedic and very dramatic way of doing yeah. things. It can be a really effective way. But the way I tend to work is you just manipulate the dialogue ever so slightly um, and not in a clunky way. I think that's what people worry about. They think. So it, oh, do it doesn't become exposition, exposition. Exposition, it's yeah. still tight and it still flows in the way that it did in the original play. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, a lot of people still assume that it's going to be a comment, exactly as you're saying, exposition, a comment on, on the action, like, John puts the glass down mm. and walks across the stage, you know, and it, it wouldn't be that. Or, you know, John makes a face. Instead, you would just have the character on stage with him say, don't make that face at me. You know, it's, yeah. it's reactionary. I think that's because acting is reacting, as we all know. And if you add the AD, generally speaking, to reactions, it does a lot for describing, you know, for, for relaying the information that's needed. Mm. There are all sorts of different mechanisms that you can use. Um, what's absolutely vital is that you work with a consultant because... Their, you know, their role is to point out to you exactly what needs describing first of all, and what doesn't need describing because less is more. Um, and if you work with an experienced consultant who is also a theatre practitioner, then they they can guide you on how to construct the AD in a way that yeah. is completely seamless and you know completely integral to your piece. And that's the most important thing because there's no one way to do it, and there's no, you know, like, nobody can say right, you do A, B, and C, and that's how to make your thing accessible. It doesn't work like that. Uh, are people in the industry and Wales becoming more aware that people like you, consultants like you, exist? Well, I hope that's what the toolkit will do, because you know, often I've been asked so many times over the last few years to. Um, offer some advice or provide some consultancy for free because mm. nobody has realised that this is a role and they haven't realised that it's a role they need to budget for and they come to me after they've received their funding and gone, oh, uh, I've just heard that you can help with audio description, could you please come in and, and uh, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll help, but this is a paid role, so people need to be aware that they need to budget for consultants as well as describers or instead of describers um, at, at the budgeting at the application stage. So I really hope that people read the toolkit because it does have details about you know fees and how much things might cost and how to go about budgeting or um, planning for a consultant, what kind of audio description might suit your show best, touch tours, all sorts of other VI access mm. features that are really, really important that you need to know about. And it's a, hopefully a really comprehensive and practical guide so that people can just consult it and go, okay, I understand now what I need to do to make my work or my venue more accessible for VI people. And this is um, other people that I need to speak to. Yeah. So I really hope that lots of people will read it.
Hopefully, uh, it needs to go out to venues, doesn't it? It needs to go out to company and venues yeah. to get that widespread um, awareness that is needed. Yeah, and I think going back to your very original question, which I digressed from madly, so I'm very sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the key thing, I think, for, for Wales to be more accessible to VI people in general is to first of all understand what access needs are out there, and secondly, consistently offer that access. Don't mm. just do it once or twice and go, oh, well, we didn't get the audiences, so we're not going to spend that money anymore. It doesn't work like that. VI audiences are used to not being catered for, and a lot of VI audiences are, have absolutely, or VIPs have absolutely no idea that access exists for them in the theatre. Mm. So you need to make things accessible, market that accessibly, and make sure that everyone knows yeah. about it, and offer it consistently. And once you do that, you will see your audiences starting to grow, and it will be a gradual process. It won't happen straight away. You have to be consistent and patient. I guess once you get into the rhythm of making something like an audio flyer for every production, it becomes a natural process, like yeah. marking up a flyer on, on Photoshop. Like it becomes a rhythm that you get into. So the access um, starts to become more integrated into the companies, the big companies in Wales. Yeah. I'd just like to move on, if that's alright. I'd like to talk about the house of Bernarda Adelbert that you mm -hmm. were in. Um, that is, I think it's still available on the Grey Eye YouTube channel. I watched it um, last week and I really enjoyed Um But um, what was it like to be a part of that? Production. Oh, it was absolutely incredible. And to work in a space like the, the Royal Exchange in Manchester was absolutely brilliant. It's such a cool space. It's a brilliant theatre. Um, it's sort of, yeah, it's in the round and it's, mm. you know, they've got, uh, I think, two or three tiers, but it still feels really, really intimate. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, we called it Bananarama when we were doing it. <laughs> um, nice. And to work with someone like Catherine Hunter was just such a, an opportunity. And my God, did I learn a lot from her. She was incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, and to work with, you know, the rest of the cast who were all fantastic. It was just wonderful. The main really lovely surprise about it was the fact that it was an all-female production everyone there was no man in sight it was all female cast and crew everybody was was female and uh, or identified as female and it was just such a different working space you know um from from normal sort of you know integrated uh, spaces it just felt so wonderful to just be with women it felt much safer it felt that we were freer to um to play and uh it you know very unexpectedly just felt free of any kind of um judgment isn't quite the right word but you know we just we just felt a lot freer and it was a real um eye-opener actually to work in that way um but also to work with a completely disabled cast as well mm. was really interesting because I think that was the first time I'd worked with an all disabled cast. Um, and interestingly, because obviously it was quite a high profile show, yeah. we had sort of, you know, all the reviews come in quite early on. We had press night and, and all the rest of it. And um, what I was worried about did appear did did end up kind of being the case in the end i was worried that we'd get lots of reviews that said oh it was great weren't they wonderful one of them took their leg off and lots of them were deaf and they did a great job despite all of them being special and yeah <laughs> and, uh, and there was that uh, there was an element that i felt although i'm i'm very right. um, you know biased uh, and cynical when it comes to stuff like that um and what I found quite frustrating was that because I have a relatively invisible impairment, most most people wouldn't know necessarily that I was visually impaired um, straight away. I I felt that you know 
lots of other actors got, and this is my ego speaking here, lots of other actors <laughs> like, oh, she was brilliant, she took her leg off, she was brilliant, she was deaf, she was, and, and maybe I got a mention in a few of them, but I found that. <laughs> it might just be because I'm crap, but it... <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say that, Chloe, but... Here, I keep your mouth shut. I don't know, and again, it comes into this confidence thing, because if you're an actor with an impairment, you never know how much you've got a job because of your impairment or yeah. because you're actually up to the job, if you're like me and you sort of have imposter syndrome to a degree anyway. Um, and, and it's an insecurity of mine, so it's, it's completely down to me, but uh, I did feel that for a show that weighed on disability, there's still you're still... Um, at the mercy of the non-disabled world judging and commenting on you and their misguided um, sort of perception of disabled casts mm. um, and, and feeling the need to mention that these people were deaf or that person has one leg or that that person has, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, for us it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Yeah. Just people putting on a play um, and a good play, I hope. I, mm. you know, um, I think it was something we could all be proud of, but it was marred for me by the fact that the the reaction, the response to it from the mainstream world was, oh, well, aren't they great? They did this, and, uh, you know. Um, How was it marketed, then? Was it marketed as a mainstream show with an all-disabled cast? Or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. There wasn't a huge emphasis on us being disabled. It was just, it was a Royal Exchange and Grey Eye Coco. Mm. So, you know, anyone who knows that Grey Eye are a disabled-led company would have known that um, that the cast were going to be disabled, probably. But but I, there wasn't an emphasis on that in the marketing. It was it was just a production of Bernarda Alba. Yeah. Bernarda we like to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, our impairments were referenced in the play because there's no point in in pretending that we're not disabled as a no. cast and we wanted to to make sure that it was you know that we were using our impairments to, to the advantage to the creative advantage of the play mm. um obviously there was as as you saw you know there was integrated bsl and there was yeah i don't i don't think you see in in the video but there's uh, captioning all around the there are, i think there were seven screens all around the um I was going to say, no, you couldn't see any mm-hmm. and, and we did integrate as much AD as possible as well. We worked with Mandy Redvers Rowe, who's an absolutely brilliant uh, vision-impaired artist, uh, theatre-maker, actor, mm. writer, um, and she consulted on, on, the, on the show. And she worked with Joe Clifford, the writer, to, to integrate as much AD as possible. So, um, and we, you know, we, we didn't hide the fact that we had impairments, but we knew that in showing them, and my major concern at the very beginning was in showing them, that's what's going to be picked up on. That's what they're going to yeah. run with. You know, that's what they're going to be obsessed by. It's not, it will supersede the quality uh, of the aren't show. Aren't they brave, aren't they? Like, mm. Yeah, it's a balance that you yes. need to yeah. find, that we all need to find as disabled artists. Yeah, and I think the onus doesn't have to be on us. I think the onus should be on the rest of society to educate, to be, you know, we need to educate them, but they need to want to be educated. That's true. Um, and learn that actually, you know, there are people underneath these impairments that they see first. <laughs> and yeah. um, and we're just as valid as any other performer, any other production. And it doesn't need to be yeah. all about overcoming adversity or anything like that you know our impairments are a part of who we are and we can use them creatively as part of our performance but don't let that be the be all and end all of of our performance so i think you know it's definitely striking a balance on our part but i think until society is more aware and more educated i think we're always going to have that response to be honest which is really disappointing in 2020 but it is I don't know what we can do apart from continue to make work, which is going to be harder post-COVID because so many of us are going to be shielding. Are we going to make work? Are we going to be able to get our work out there and 
Are we going to be less visible as disabled artists post-COVID? And how is that going to affect the way that we're seen by, you know, mainstream viewers and mainstream audiences? Mm. I know, I think we're, we've always had to work hard to, you know, uh, stay on top of all that. But yes, you're right, we'll have to work even harder now. And there are initiatives like, you know, We Shall Not Be Removed and mm. things like that that are working very hard to make sure that we don't end up massively disadvantaged because of this situation. Um, you know, my equality, you know, my, uh, the Deaf and Disabled Members Committee that I'm on with Equity, we're working very hard to try and, as are all the other equalities committees, yeah. working hard to try and make sure that equalities is, well, and it has been announced by Equity that equalities is one of their main four pillars of, of how we continue in the industry um, and safeguard, you know, our, our position within the industry. Um, so at least I think there's a lot more awareness now than there was 30, 40 years ago. You know, it's, yeah. we are making headway. It is happening. It's just happening too slowly. Um, and like you said, you know, in 2020, we shouldn't be seeing um, cases of cripping up and we shouldn't be seeing, no. you know, cases of discrimination and, and bullying and, and everything. Why, why is it still a big thing to see a disabled actor playing a disabled role in a play? Mm -hmm. You know, why is that something to be commended? That should be the base level. Oh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and why applauded if a, if a non-disabled person plays a disabled role? How is that still applauded when they wouldn't dream of of blacking up anymore? But people don't draw that illusion. You know, they don't they don't no. those two those two things. Because they're not seeing disability as a social identity. That's no. the thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's the yeah. thing. It's. Mm. No, it's going to take us, Kieran. We're going to have to, the revolution, we have to start this revolution clearly, definitely. Um, I'm going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to step on the soapbox anymore. <laughs> That's the danger, isn't it, though? We, we preach and we preach, and then the... The mainstream areas of the industry will go all those disabled people off again uh, and they'll just ignore us. So that's the danger yeah. of it. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you're right that we've all got to work together. And, you know, as I said before, main, you know, main areas of society, non-disabled people basically is what I'm saying, um, <laughs> do need to educate themselves and be aware, but there's no blame there. You know, no. It's not like saying, oh, you're all ignorant and it's your fault you're ignorant and you should know better. No, you shouldn't, because why would you? If you, you don't know anyone who's disabled and you're not disabled, then it's not anything to do with you. Of course you're not going to know about it. There's no, that's no fault of yours, you know. Yeah. But, um, but we all need to be a bit more empathetic and a bit more compassionate about everyone. You know, I need to be a better ally to other people with barriers and... Um, prejudice yeah. against them as well you know we all need to sort of educate ourselves and better understand the situation the reality that, that faces other people um but you're right you know the more we sort of bang our drum the more we turn people off but yeah. how do you get yourself heard without without doing you know, that last thing, thing um, so it's a really really tight rope to walk it's really tricky but you know and, and, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the access meetings that they have at places like the WMC, a lot of the time the problem is you're preaching to the converted because the people in the room are the people who are already thinking about it. Yeah. And what you need is to reach the people who aren't aware of it at all and, and get them to rethink mm. the way that, that things run. And I hope that actually the, the sort of reshapes and reshakes that are going to need to happen as, as lockdown, you know, uh, restrictions are lifted and the industry sort of emerges like a phoenix from the ashes <laughs> you know i hope that's an opportunity for us to get people to sort of think slightly differently about things and see the opportunities that are but, but we've seen it already you know these creative meetings that have taken place over zoom you know if, if that was an option before lockdown 
um, people who couldn't attend. You know, people who had access requirements and that yeah. I mean they couldn't attend could have. It just wasn't considered. It. Yeah. Uh, it's about ensuring that this continues after we hopefully come through this. Um, my last question to you is you've already kind of covered this, but um, kind of what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in the industry? Ooh, um, let me think. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I've, I've sort of covered it a little bit. I because all I can do really is think about what I would do differently. And um, as I said, I, I try, you know, harder to get into an accredited course because I think it opens doors more than more so than you know the standard of teaching, which I think is good in lots of places. Um, I think it just opens doors, and you meet people that you need to know, and you establish connections. And not just in terms of visiting tutors or agents or people who get to see you in showcases and masterclasses and things, but your peers as well. Because quite yeah. frankly, at an expensive drama school, you're much like more likely to be with um, classmates who whose parents are already in the industry and quite well off, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's completely snobbish because at the end of the day, it's just not realistic for most of us. I couldn't have afforded to do it, even if I got in, probably. And, and you know, most people can't. And there is still a lot of racism and a huge amount of ableism and everything that goes goes on in drama schools. So it's not accessible for many people for many different reasons. So it's that's okay. I, I revoke that advice. It's bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, for those who can afford it, it does open doors. I think, and it's just a real elitist. It's a real shame that it's so elitist, and I hope that more and more programs are being offered and, and bursaries are being offered to allow students from broader mm. more diverse backgrounds to attend because basically i was put off by the fact that it's so elitist and so expensive and didn't yeah. think that i would ever get in anyway because you know 10 11 years ago they really weren't accepting any disabled students onto courses very much um but i would say don't be put off and still try and try and find yeah. a way if you can but yeah, so that's one thing, just just because I think it opens doors, plus it gives you confidence further down the line mm. to feel a bit less like an imposter, perhaps, especially if you're disabled, perhaps. Um, uh, I would also say, yeah, be wary of the kind of work you're taking. Um, obviously, take what you can at first, everyone needs to, but be more discerning earlier on than I was and, and really think about what you're excited by, where you want to go and be uh, not just persevere, but, but really take the initiative and try and mm. make roads in inroads for yourself. Um, carve this niche for yourself more for you than, than, you know, because there's so much um, pressure to sort of bring everything you can to the industry. You know, what are you bringing? What are you going to do? Yeah. Think not what your industry can do for you, but what you can do, <laughs> do for your industry. And, and I think it's it's both things. It's not just one way. Think about what you want and what the industry can do for you and, and where you want to yeah. go. Um, and I think the third thing I would say is don't let yourself be taken advantage of and bullied because that is yeah. a reality of this industry, especially if you're emerging and especially if you're disabled. Um, you know, there are lots of people out there who seem great at first, but take advantage, you know, and I think it's really important to, to be very aware of what your rights are and what your expectations should be, as, as particularly as a performer. Well, right. because, well, because that's my experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Writers and everyone. But, um, but really just, you know, become an equity member. <laughs> Join your union. Uh, or, you know, join the Writers Guild or mm. Musicians Union, whatever your union is. But really do it because you can join as a student for £15 a year, which is brilliant. Um, otherwise, it's £10 a month or £9.80 or something a month. And it's really worth it. Your union has got your back. And if anything happens and you feel like you're being taken advantage of in any way, they are there to advise you and weigh in if you need them to. And I think that's just vital because if you wait till later on and you find that you have an issue 
and then you contact your union, they're less likely to be able to help you because they can see that you're only contacting them and joining so that you can get their yeah. help. If you become a member anyway, then you're covered. It also gives you public liability insurance, which is great. Um, you know, so if you're klutz like me and break lots of things. <laughs> but I would say, you know, those three things. Be aware of your rights and your, what your expectations of a company should be. Don't be taken advantage of. You know, figure out what you want to do mm. early on, if you can, and, and head in the direction you want to go in. Persevere and um, get as much training as you can. If it's not accredited or whatever, just do lots of residences and masterclasses yeah. and workshops. And there are lots of opportunities out there for, you know, much... Um, you know, re, uh, not refunds. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discounts. Discounts on classes and things like that. Another reason to be an uh, equity member, by the way, gives you lots of discounts. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th those are my main things I would say to anyone starting out now. Thank you so much, Chloe. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for your oh. time. My pleasure. Lovely to catch up with you. Thank you for. for having a chat with me <laughs> um i'm not sure who's going to be the guest on the next episode but thank you all for listening and i will see you next week thank you for listening to this episode of in lockdown with the podcast is written produced and curated by me kieran fitzgerald Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.